Welcome everyone once again to the conversation on TYT. I'm your sometimes host Francesca Fiorentini. I hope everyone is safe and healthy. I'm so excited to talk to our first guest for this segment. Her name is Melba Pearson. She's an attorney, a criminal justice reform advocate, and she's running to be the next state attorney for Miami-Dade County. Welcome Melba. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. This is a close race and it's an exciting one. And there are many reasons that you're running. But one of them, you've spoken about the mass incarceration crisis, as you call it, in the county. Can you just talk a bit about that and what its impact has been on the community? Sure, so first off, I was deputy director of the ACLU of Florida. And during the time that I was in that office, we released a study called Unequal Treatment. And -hmm. what it did was explore the data between 2010 and 2015 of all the criminal cases in Miami-Dade County. And what was revealed was that black Miamians get almost up to three times worse outcomes than their white counterparts at every single stage of the system, including arrests, charging, what charges are filed, types of pleas offered, as well as the sentences that are obtained after trial. And if you're black Hispanic, that goes up to almost six times worse outcomes. So. These are the clear effects of mass incarceration, where incarceration is valued over diversion programs, over restorative justice, rehabilitation, and that is not the pathway to safer communities. We know this from decades of studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just quickly, I know you say you're running on a platform that includes restorative justice. What does that mean to you briefly? I know a lot of people are hearing it for the first time. What does that mean? Restorative justice is a concept that's been around forever, right? Basically, the indigenous tribes, the native peoples, that is something that is a key part of their justice system. You know, when you look at, you know, African tribes, this is something that's part of their system. It's about really connecting the person that that committed a crime with the victim, with the survivor, and really making sure that the offender understands the harm that they did. The purpose of it is to keep the community harmonious, because if you think about a small village, somebody steals you know, property from someone else in a small village, you can't, you know, you got to all still live together, right? So I think that there's something to be said about really facing the person and understanding the harm you've caused so that you're less likely to do it in the future. This doesn't right. apply to all cases, obviously, sure. but I think there's certain charges that are very amenable to that sort of justice. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And right now, the effect of mass incarceration on communities is the opposite and as you're explaining predominantly black and brown communities and specifically black Latino communities. I guess I've just wanted to ask you about your opponent, right? Catherine Fernandez Rundle has been state's attorney for something like 26 years, is that? Seven, 27 years. Is that possible? That's a very long time. Just tell me about her and tell me about the justice system under her watch. 
Certainly, so my opponent, who I actually used to work for in the past, has been in office for 27 years. She was appointed when Janet Reno was appointed by President Bill Clinton to be his attorney general. Oh, wow. So that's just to give you a kind of context of how long this has been. And so under her watch, in her 27 years, she has never once filed charges against a police officer for an on-duty killing, not once. And to give you some context, between 2016 and 2019, there were 73 police involved shootings, fatal and non fatal. So, I mean, if you multiply that by the 27 years, you already know that there is a clear lack of political will when it comes to holding bad actors in the criminal justice system accountable. I can point to the case of Darren Rainey, who was a man who was in custody here at a prison in Miami Dade County, who was literally boiled to death by four correctional officers in a scalding hot shower that ranged in temperature from 160 to 180 degrees Fahrenheit. They left him in that shower for two hours as he screamed and begged for his life. And my opponent did not see fit to file charges against the four officers. There was another police officer, Jesus Menacal, who was sexually assaulting women and underage girls. And when they came forward, they were disbelieved by the state attorney's office. They didn't even do the due diligence to speak to all five of the survivors only speaking to one and never bringing justice to these survivors. It took the feds to get involved for there to be any modicum of justice to start to move forward for these folks. And Jeez. I can go on and on. There's a number of very high profile problematic cases that show that my opponent is out of touch and that you know her time has passed. And it's time to pass the baton to the next generation to make sure that justice is real and accessible for everyone in this county. And as I mentioned earlier, it's a tight race. And it looks like your message is resonating with people. You have big endorsements, the Democratic Hispanic Caucus of Florida, Democratic Haitian American Caucus of Florida, Florida LGBTQ plus Democratic Caucus. So what has been the response to your campaign? So we have been gaining so much momentum that it's literally like, it's like a runaway freight train, like you can't stop us, right? <laughs> I mean, and it's been amazing because you think about, you know, I announced my candidacy on January 15th of this year. And you wow, think of yeah. all the things that have occurred in the last eight months, a global pandemic and, you know, the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. And yeah. so much has really come to light that people are really realizing the power of electricity prosecutor and especially what's so key about this race is that mine is the largest prosecutor's office in the state of Florida and the fourth largest in the country. So think about the national effects if we're able to get someone like me who is unapologetically progressive and wants to center the experiences of marginalized peoples and make sure that justice is real and accessible for everyone. Imagine the work that we can do and imagine the policy changes we could see on a national level with you know with with this kind of concerted effort amongst other like minded prosecutors in the country, we can really change the face of this country and how criminal justice is being administered. Absolutely, Um, my question then is you're in Florida, right? So what has been the pushback uh, on the other side? Have you um, been on the receiving end of attack ads and campaigns? 
So at this juncture, no, but of course, 11 days left. So you know, anything can happen. <laughs> but what what has been my experience, unfortunately, is there's some people who are just, you know, making assumptions that as a result of my work and my prior history, I must be a communist, I must be a socialist, you know, because of the fact that I unapologetically speak about issues of equality, then I must hate white people, I must hate police, sure. you know, and, 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 and you know, all of these, all this rhetoric that if people actually just took five seconds and listened to what the words that came out of my mouth, you would realize that I'm, I'm none of those things. And that at the end of the day, I'm about equality and making mm-hmm. sure that everyone is treated fairly. I'm not looking to get into office and then quote unquote oppress white people, right? I'm not looking to get into mm-hmm. office and quote unquote, you know, go after police officers willy nilly because I have nothing else to do, right? right no, right. it's about holding people accountable that do bad things. That's the purpose of the justice system. And we have to hold America to her promise of liberty and justice for all. And speaking of your record with ACLU, you successfully um, helped pass the voting voting restoration amendment 2018. Um, it was put to the voters, 64% I believe of them voted to restore voting rights for former felons, which would apply to nearly a million people in Florida. Um, now the Supreme Court is upholding a DeSantis um, ruling that says, yes, these felons can vote, former felons can vote, but they have to pay fees and fines and um, restitution. What is what does this mean? What's the state of voting rights in Florida for former felons right now? Um, what are those are those barriers significant? Yes, those barriers are significant. Um, so when we look at the complete total, I want to say it's like 1.6 or 1.7 million people with felony convictions were affected by this passage of Amendment 4, which was you know so much hard work and everyone was really excited. And so many people started to register in January of 2019 when the law came into effect. But unfortunately, the Florida legislature somehow thought that the Florida voters didn't understand what they were voting for, which is very disrespectful, honestly. When 65% of the voters, you know, listened to the arguments, read all the information that was out there. I mean, this was a year-long campaign yeah. for it to be on the ballot in November. So again, people really understood what they were voting for, but they added these additional roadblocks. So where it stands right now, if you have no outstanding fines, fees, and restitution, you're able to register to vote and vote. Mm-hmm. If you have outstanding fines, fees, and restitution, you are not able to register at this point. Unfortunately, the trial judge had sided in our favor saying that this type of scheme was a poll tax and basically excluding people based on finances from being able to vote, which is not okay. The judge had really come up with a great format, basically putting the burden on the state to say, listen, you have to tell people how much they owe. You can't have people calling every different clerk's office trying to figure out what their balance is because it's a case that's 10 years old or whatever the case right. may be. Uh, but unfortunately, yeah. the, the appeals court saw it differently. So we're in a, in a, we still have another ways to go. The appeal court has not made their final ruling. So we will see what happens, we're still hopeful. But you know, this has been a blow to voting rights in Florida. Well, um, I, I wish you the best of luck. I mean, if if your work in the past is any sign, I think it bodes very, very well for August 18th, which is when this runoff election and effectively the, re, the election for state's attorney in Miami-Dade County. Thank you so much, Melba Pearson. 
Um, best of luck to you and thank you for schooling us on all this. Thank you, it's my pleasure to be on, take good care. Take care. Welcome back to the conversation. My next guest is a reporter with The Guardian. She worked on the series called Guns and Lies in America and has done some recent reporting on how coronavirus has impacted the incarcerated community in California. Please welcome Abane Clayton. Abane, thanks so much for being here. You have written this article about COVID and its spread in prisons in California. So you write that 8,000 California inmates have tested positive for coronavirus. 49 have died. Can you just explain beyond the numbers what the situation is like? So from conversations that I've had with people who are currently incarcerated, folks who have gotten out early through these COVID population density relief efforts as well as advocates, it's a really, I mean, bungled is probably not even a uh, the best word to use here, but it's just really confusing lots of moving pieces. Um, this is a of course unprecedented situation, but from what I've heard people's um, you know rehabilitation, the programs that they were a part of have completely stopped. you know the people are on lockdown um, earlier in my reporting, I was hearing from folks who were scared to even, um, Revealed that they were having coronavirus symptoms because mm-hmm. they knew that they would be moved. And um, some people had cellmates who tested positive while they were negative and they were just kept together because there simply was no space for the first month, month and a half, two months of coronavirus entering the um, the institutions where it's uh, where it's concentrated. And um, they opened a, they built a tent city in San Quentin to try to help that. Um, Situation and people, but it hasn't done much in terms of the like emotional toll and not being able to talk to your friends and stay in touch with loved ones. And I even talked to some families who just couldn't get in contact and couldn't get any medical information and were finding out really piecemeal through, you know, contraband cell phones and things of that nature. It's just been a really, really difficult situation for all the stakeholders, of course, um, most difficult for the folks who are incarcerated um, throughout California. Absolutely, I mean, it's incredibly scary. And and so how was it to get the information? Like if family members are having a hard time getting proper information about their loved ones, um, what about yourself? Is Do you feel like there's been a damage control sort of PR machine that's at work here to try and conceal some of what's going on in terms of uh, coronavirus's spread in the prison system? Um, I definitely think the, the the spin machine is running. You know, mm-hmm. um, it there's no way really for the CDCR to not look um, quite shabby in this situation. I have been relatively um, fortunate in having good relationships with different local advocates and formerly incarcerated people. Um, I volunteered at San Quentin when I was in grad school doing the newspaper. So there were just different connections that I was able to foster as a reporter. Um, and people trusted me to share you know, my contact with the folks who are inside. And honestly, just posting occasionally to like Facebook or just saying, does anyone have a family member? And I got loads of really, really scared mothers and wives who reached out just to be heard. So um, in terms of reaching stakeholders out here who are in the free world, um, it's been 
um, exceptional, exceptionally um, amazing just to see how many people are so willing to, to talk to reporters. When it comes to reaching out to prison officials, of course, the story is quite different. There's a main spokeswoman who um, the bare basics of uh, information she will give most things end up being you know confidential and um, or will be directed back to the website. So there, uh, there's not a lot of content there. I mostly I've mostly been relying on um, memos and things of that nature to try to piece things together. But if there's something that needs to be confirmed and I need to reach out to the CDCR for contact for um, you know, confirmation and things of that nature, I, I do it as a part of my due diligence. But it's, uh, it's hard to get really straight answers that um, address the concerns that I hear. So it's been mostly- right. Yeah, you you also write that not only family members are concerned, inmates are concerned because they can't socially distance from one another, but there are shortages of basic things like soap and other you know cleaning supplies. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, when I was hearing from people, especially those who are in these more congregate dormitory style settings, there was just a real struggle to get. Good soap, you know, they had to do the whole dilute it with water to make it stretch, getting one mask um, to try to make it last for a few days. And people weren't having access to showers, but maybe three times a week making their own sort of um, Lysol, you know, because certain, certain things just count as contraband. You can't have in prison, you can't have the same kind of hand sanitizer and Windex and the things we rely on out here. It's illegal in there and there are shortages among wow. people who are incarcerated as well as the staff, which we heard about during a really illuminating um, Senate hearing uh, about a month ago. Right, because when outbreaks happen in prisons, it's not just obviously within the walls of prisons, but outside, right? Um, so, like, what is the impact on communities when there's been an outbreak in San Quentin, for example? Yeah, so um, San Quentin is a bit of a kind of different situation. In if you look at the whole scope of okay. the CDCR, it's in a very, um, it is of course a prison, so it's not going to be. You know the Shangri-La or anything, but it is in a very uh, resource-rich area. You're in the San Francisco Bay Area. You have um, the prison itself has kind of become a beacon of rehabilitation. A lot of people are looking at it. Doctors, medical professionals. It's in uh, right across the bridge from UCSF Medical Center and all of these amazing research institutions. But if you look at a place like Avenal and some of the other prisons that are in the more rural parts of California where hospital resources are already slim and these prisons are a primary employer. Mm-hmm. That's where you really start to see just how dangerous a coronavirus outbreak can be for such a, a small town. And you really um, realize how it's illuminating issues in healthcare and shortages that existed long before coronavirus came onto the scene. And I, I think that's really where um, a lot of the danger is to the surrounding communities in those rural places that are already um, struggling along. Right, places that had health deserts, if you will, doctor shortages already. Now that the coronavirus is arguably coming back home because of people who work in those prisons. Um, yeah, they're, they're grappling now with that 
health crisis. It's not contained. I mean, it's it's a pretty morbid reminder of just how many people are incarcerated, right? Um, but now you realize you can't you can't just lock away your problems. Hey, what do you what yeah. do you know? Maybe prisons aren't the solution. Yeah, <laughs> um, of safety, it really uh, it puts it in a different frame. Like, what does actually keep us safe? Is it locking away? People and having institutions that are over 120% filled, or right. is it finding alternatives that can heal, restore, et cetera, et cetera? And at um, those investments uh, are have been a long time coming, and I don't know if this current situation will show just how um, just how high the stakes are. Because, like you mentioned, there are people who are coming home who work in prisons and that's how it got in there in the first place. And now they're bringing it to their families and it's just, it's a really unfortunate situation in the state. So Governor Newsom obviously has been praised because he's better than Trump, which is just such a low bar. I don't think it deserves praise, but what has been the governor's response? And I know there is a promise to decarcerate or depopulate some of the prisons, as you mentioned, that are already over capacity, right? These are they're completely overcrowded. What's the state now? Like, what 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 moment are we in? And do you think that this gets better? Well, I will say that for the first couple months of um, reporting on coronavirus, there Newsom has these. They're called like Newsom's at noons. I don't know if that's the official name, but that's what we kind of call them in the newsroom. Newsom at noon, and he was surprisingly um, for a lot of stakeholders quiet about the outbreak even as it grew and even as the reporting was showing okay cases are going up exponentially you know what I'm saying to the third and fourth power here um, he was quiet until about maybe a, a month or so ago when some reporters pressed him on it and um, you're right there have been some efforts to decarcerate they announced three new initiatives one is a credit earning initiative and then there are some um, Early reviews of cases for folks who would be out within, you know, maybe six months to a year, and that's said to have um, an effect on anywhere from like eight thousand to seventeen thousand people. Oh, but wow. um, in terms of does it get better, I'm not sure, just because of the, um, from what I have seen, the violent, nonviolent offender dichotomy. It's just politically unpalatable to say we're going to release. Lifers, regardless of whether or not they're, you know, 70 and have been behind bars since they were 19. And that is really where a lot of people want to focus efforts, not necessarily on the younger people who are about to be out anyway, but more so on those folks who may have a very, um, a very serious felony that they're serving time for, but are the most vulnerable to get and die from coronavirus. I don't know if he's um, ready to make that move. So, yeah. Right. That's a really, really important point. Absolutely. That it's the more at risk populations who might, yeah, be serving longer sentences for more serious crimes, um, which is a different conversation. Meanwhile, uh, Roger Stone apparently can't serve any time for his crimes because he is elderly. He's what, 60 something? Uh, the same age as probably many of the people who are currently uh, incarcerated and are suffering from coronavirus. Anyway, um, Abine Clayton, journalist with The Guardian, thank you so, so much for this reporting and for the interview. Uh, make sure to check out her work um, and stay safe. Thank you so much, same to you. Thank you for having me, this was great.